Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast and our monthly series Behind the Lens, where I speak to photographers, filmmakers, and creatives from around the world about breathtaking imagery and film and the stories behind them. In keeping with the nature of this podcast, much of these conversations are focused around the intersection between wildlife and humans, but occasionally we will expand outside this realm, looking at expeditions, human conflict, and social struggle. In this show, I speak to Derek Malou. His work has been on my radar for quite some time, and as someone who also enjoys countryside pursuits, much of his imagery is focused on the natural world, with an incredible eye for colour, composition, and design. You can find him at D underscore Malou, which is D underscore M-A-L-O-U, on Instagram. And the images that we talk about in this show you can find on my account at Byron J. Pace. I posted them a couple of days ago. These new shows are made possible by our Patreon supporters, of course, and Modern Huntsman, which is just about to release Volume 5 of its publication. It's going to print, I I think, today. So it should be available in the next coming weeks and is currently available on pre-order if you visit the Modern Huntsman website. If you want to support these shows, head over to patreon.com forward slash pacebrothers. Thank you for tuning in. Next week, we will have our normal long-form conversation, which will be with Dr. Amy Dickman from Oxford University, where we talk all about global conservation. How has the last three months been for you? I imagine it's been very similar to a lot of photographers, filmmakers, and creatives I know, in that you've been locked down and all of your work has been cancelled. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Since... Yeah, almost three months now. I'm uh, at my parents' house in uh, Slovakia, and uh, yeah, just all my job were cancelled. Uh, as like few jobs for editing and stuff like that, but nothing like traveling again. <laughs> and and yeah, shooting a bit here. Uh, I'm lucky because I have a lot of nature around me and wildlife, so that's that's cool. So what uh, were there any amazing trips that you had to cancel that were already on the books that got canceled because of the global lockdown? Yeah, I was supposed to be in the US in uh, end April, beginning of May for a, lo- a long uh, road trip uh, around the West US. And that was, of course, canceled. Anyway, a European cannot travel to US. So <laughs> no, no. When I left the US, I had like two weeks left on my three-month ESTA visa, which is what you would have been traveling on too, I assume. And, yeah, uh, yeah. We can't, we can't go back now. Trump doesn't want us back yet. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably I will just postpone it for September, but we never know. I mean, for now, the situation is not clear yet. So no. Well, we'll just have to wait and see. We're going to talk about some of your images. Now, you've sent me through a selection. Before I I go through the pictures that you've sent me, which are stunning, I've always loved your work. I want to talk about uh, a handful of pictures which we pulled for the latest issue of Modern Huntsman. So I wrote a story uh, based on a documentary called The Islands and the Whales with a friend of mine, Mike Day, who's been on the podcast before. And we pulled some screen grabs from that story, which was 
largely speaking about whale hunting. I've talked about it on the podcast a number of times in, in sort of recent weeks. Uh, but we were slightly lacking in actual still image photography because the, these were screen grabs from the film that he took, which, which worked really well on design. So I knew that you had been to the Pharaohs. I reached out to you and said, hey, do you have some imagery that we could use in this story? And you presented we, me with way more than I could ever use, and it was beautiful. How did you end up in <laughs> the Pharaohs? And uh, tell me, I thought the, the one image that sticks in my mind in particular that I want to ask you about after you tell me why you were there is uh, one of the images that we used, I think, was um, a boat in the water, and there's like a seagull coming across. The seagull's like slightly blurred because it's moving, and you've got cliffs on the right-hand side and this incredible blue yeah, sea. I'm <laughs> yeah, that's probably my, my favorite uh, image from that trip, for sure. Uh, so basically, like three years ago, I think I went on a trip in Thailand with uh, another Belgian photographer. And uh, he was doing all the still image and I was producing a short film for that trip. And of course, we became friends and started to talk a lot. And the year after, uh, he went already like two times in the Faroe Island for the Far East Tourism Office. And he went back on 2018, I guess. Uh, and he was looking for a filmmaker to just join him on the trip. So that, that's why I went the first time in the Faroe Islands and started to work with the Far East tourism office okay uh, and you what was the i saw the film actually when it came out the sort of uh, a short showcase of what's there for people to see where can people watch that uh probably on the youtube channel of uh visit faro island or instagram i think or on of course on my uh, own social channel what was it like being there? What's it, what's it like as a place? It, it's on my bucket list of locations to visit. Uh, probably it's my favorite place I've ever visited. Um, why? It's just because the mix of modern, you know, Scandinavian culture and uh, still very traditional and local life being isolated for so long time. It's just crazy. Uh, also, the landscape, as you can imagine, are incredible. For me, it's a mix between maybe a bit of Scotland and Iceland. Mm. It's, it looks like the kind of place that it doesn't matter where you point your camera. There's going to be an image shot. and There's going to be exactly. an amazing image. And that's not to take anything away from the skill of any photographer who gets exactly. there or, or, or to take away from the, the incredible images that you took. But landscape and light just seem to be in abundance there yeah light is difficult because the first time i went there it was like raining every day um you can get some moody shot but under heavy rain it's it's still difficult uh but last last time i went like uh this last summer the light was incredible so this image in particular the one with the boat and the seagull tell me about how that came i assume that's a drone shot and yeah was it something that was planned was it was it an accident what made you uh try and capture that image it was uh, like just luck <laughs> uh we went on i was with my brother that time on the on this trip that was last year uh and we went to um 
another island which can only can be reached by boat uh, by the ferry which is called uh, Sandoy it's almost one hour uh, boat I think almost yeah and uh, I was already there the year before and knew some place especially that place where you can see that I don't know, that rock coming out of the sea. Oh, the, yeah, the, the cliff face, like just going up to the sky from the sea. Yeah, but you see in fr- just in the front of the boat, you see that stone coming out. I don't know what you call it. Ah, they have a special okay. yeah, name yeah. for it in the Faroe Island, but I don't know in English the name. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and find the image while you're talking because I can't quite remember the, uh, I can't remember the rock. I think it was a rock stack, was it? Yeah, yeah. And we were there. There, there were a very isolated farm there I wanted to, to capture with the drone. So I started flying the drone and suddenly I saw that sailing boat coming over. It was really windy and like the storm was coming. So I, I sent the drone trying to catch up with this sailing <laughs> boat. <laughs> and then the battery was starting to like being very low. I was almost one kilometers away from the from my point and just snapped few pictures a bit of footage and then back and the, the drone literally landed on maybe three person battery <laughs> oh taking risks that i mean yeah. sometimes sometimes really... the best images come with a huge amount of risk attack exactly i i was it was really cold and windy, but I was sweating like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I've just brought it up here now. I think, yeah, you're talking about this like rock stack. Yeah, exactly. It's almost yeah. the way that you've taken the picture, the boat sailing away from you, and it's almost in line with the rock stack in the distance. Exactly. And then that further was, that land was the is goal, kind of yeah. Misty. Yeah. And then Beautiful. that seagull was just coming that was crossing planned, by, right? by, by chains you that, know? Was, that, that was that was planned you deliberately got the seagull like that <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> i love the fact that the uh i mean the seagull's slightly blurry because it must have been going pretty quick yeah exactly and yeah I, i'd and like to think that probably. was that was deliberate but your your shutter must have been quite low yeah Incredible. Well, I um, that's just one of many images that you sent me that's going to be in this uh, Islands of the Whales article in Volume 5. I really can't wait and, to see. Yeah, I'm uh, very it, excited. I, it, the, the layout design for that with your images and the images that got pulled from, from the documentary, it just it looks insanely good. So I can't wait to share that with you and uh, share it with people. So let's move on to a couple of the other images that you sent me. I'm going to start off with... Uh, a picture which I know very well because I have taken a very similar picture a number of times last year, uh, which is an aerial shot looking down in a bird's eye view of some elephants. Now, you were actually at a place not very far from where I go quite often. Um, a friend of mine's farm is just north of where you were. What took you to Namibia? What were you doing there? And tell me about this image of uh, a small herd of elephants walking with these amazing elongated shadows. Yeah, that was also last year. Um, I was working for Erindi, which uh, probably you know. Um, and we were mostly capturing wildlife and also I was doing a short film for them. And we stayed there for 
I think a week or so. Um, going out every day <laughs> early in the morning and then back in the evening. And we were almost uh, focusing on elephants. So we were tracking the elephant every day. And we were looking for that particular herd because uh, the, the local guy there know normally um, what I've been told that the elephants are quite sensible to drone. So not all herd are okay with drone flying over them. So we were tracking that particular uh, herd. And finally we found them. I sent the drone and I mean, the, they were very relaxed. No problem. I follow them for several, I don't know, 100 meters or so. And then took the drone back. But what really makes, makes it special for me is also the memories coming with it. Um, we followed that herd after with the, with the car and went to the water hole where uh, it was on the sunset and soon they were joined by other herds and at the end we were surrounded by maybe 80 elephants all around us we were literally blocked between the water hole and the herd around us so we couldn't move <laughs> from one meters without being noticed by the, by any elephant so that was scary, but probably the most beautiful moment of my life. I mean, being just in the center of 80 elephants, it's, it's great. It's incredible. You got a, the series of images that I've seen you put out from your time there in, in Namibia uh, really blew me away. You had, I mean, anybody who's been there will know that if you can get out of bed early and make the most of the light first thing in the morning and also out in the lows last couple of hours as the sun's going down, uh, Africa graces you with the most incredible light that there is to take photos with. Uh, but you really harnessed that incredibly well. Uh, obviously, this was, uh, it must have been past midday, l judging by the shadows, but still a little bit away from uh, the end of the day. Uh, but playing around with the way that the shadows are cast over the ground, for me, is kind of what makes this makes this image spectacular. Exactly, yeah. For me, the same. I wanted to have the the shadow. Uh, first, I tried with the giraffe, which is also great, but couldn't really get the the shot I had in mind. Uh, but that one with the elephant, like, really is is something. I wish there were not so much bush around, but still, I love it. <laughs> Well, now they've actually had rain, uh, so now they would all be walking in long grass. So I don't think you you wouldn't quite get the same shadows on the very dry, hard ground. The, the place that I go to, at Alex's at um, Jan Olaf's safaris, uh, it's almost unrecognizable from where I when I was there last year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've heard it's it's totally different with the rain or in the dry season. Hmm. Uh, before I move on to the the next image, the next image I want to talk about is. Um, this pack of foxhounds, I think. Uh, I wanted just to question you about how you view color. Uh, I mean, this is something you and I have, uh, I think we messaged about a little while ago um, when we were just sort of referencing the, the way people edit. Uh, obviously, a lot of this is personal taste and like, what is your preference? But I've always been very captivated by uh, the color and tone of your images. 
uh, obviously that's reflective of the place that you're in. So your whole sort of Namibia collection had a, a look and feel about it that was very distinctive. Likewise, the, the Faroese collection. What is it that you're looking for in that? Because I think if there are people who are li- listening to this who are, um, I was going to say aspiring photographers, but not even aspiring photographers, just people in the who, who enjoy taking pictures either in a professional capacity um, or just uh, enthusiastic amateurs. I think there's a tendency, especially with the sort of rise in popularity of Instagram, which is the picture platform that people use, to really sort of overdo the edit. To the point where you think it looks great, but really on reflection, sometimes after you actually realize it looks uh, terrible and, and not realistic whatsoever. And I've been guilty of that with my own images where I'll edit something, come back to it a few days later. And it's like, what on earth was I thinking? <laughs> Start again. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that too. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, for me, I, I totally agree with what you say. Um, for me, a lot of people now, and I've doing it also a lot. It's they are trying to give overall feel and style of their image. So maybe I feel they are over editing it to get the same feel on every photo. Um, now my approach is a bit different. I start from a trip. For example, if we take Namibia where um, the dominant tone would be orange, probably. Uh, I'll stick around that in edit in a way. It's, it can be like harmonious, but at the same time, it feel natural. Yeah. If you, if you get what I mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I understand that. So you're you're editing to reflect uh, ref- reflect that 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 trip and that series that you're on, rather than having everything distinctively look like. I mean, I, if I see you post your image, I, I more often than not I know it's you before I see your name anyway, because of you know that's that's a, that's a combination of, of composition and style and, and the direction of the photography. Uh, but I, I yeah, I, I I know exactly what you're saying. This sort of drive to have a distinctive look and feel. It's almost gone to the complete... If I look at what uh, Nat Geo post and like and what most of the the National Geographic photographers present, especially if you're looking at the Nat Geo channels on Instagram or wherever else you look at them, a lot of the photography has gone to the complete opposite spectrum of that because that photography is be as reflective of reality as possible. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. And also, probably I've realized then looking back at the image, I edited like maybe two or three years ago. Uh, <laughs> no, it's completely doing out, of, out of fashion, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying to not edit as the latest fashion on Instagram, but more because just because the image is beautiful on in itself, As trying to stay away from that fashion. Of course, I'm influenced by it. And you, if you look back at 80s photo or 60s, they have like their, their specific feel. But still, I think now we are probably overdoing it. Yeah, no, I would agree. From that, Let's move on and talk about this foxhound photo. Now, I think you put these up fairly recently, I think, did you? 
Uh, yeah, but actually yeah. they are old. <laughs> oh, okay. So tell me, tell me the story about this because I made a film uh, quite a few years ago now. I uh, don't think I took any stills during when I was making it, but it was all about fox hunting and the, this sort of history of packs of foxhounds and their use in the landscape. So what country is this in and uh, why were you there? Yeah, that's in France. And I have a question for you about it <laughs> because I, can, I cannot find a word for... It's not fox hunting, but actually ah. it's deer hunting. But ah, with the okay. dogs so these are and deer horse. hounds. Yeah. But ah, okay. in French, we have like this uh, particular word for it. And in English, I, I cannot find it. I, well, I might not. I don't think I'm going to be able to help, me, but, uh, help you, but tell me what the word <laughs> okay. is out of curiosity. Maybe some of our listeners can. Uh, we, we call it or chassacou, which is basically a broad word for all uh, horse and hound hunt. And then uh, more specifically, we call it venerie, which is a French word, which doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's just a word. <laughs> uh, probably if you translate it, uh, I don't know. Okay, so these... Probably um, it's, so it's, it's, it's weird in English. <laughs> <laughs> so what was, this, uh, what was this day all about? Why were you there? Um, so that was in in France, and I have no any culture of that kind of hunt. I have never been there to that kind of hunt. Um, I, I was riding quite a lot being uh, younger, but now not anymore. My my sisters are crazy about horses, but not me. <laughs> and um, that was a friend who invited me to just participate to that hunt, and. I, it's completely incredible. Uh, all the, how are you, how to explain it? I don't know, but uh, all the tradition and all the surrounding, there are so many people participating in, at that hunt, probably 120 something. People on bike, people walking on horse, jeeps, all the village was present there and it's just beautiful to see how all those people, uh, you know, join together to share the same passion. And at the end, 90% of the time, they will not catch anything. If, yeah. Most of the time, the, 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 the deer will escape. Hmm. And, and are they just, are they hunting just a single animal? Yeah. Yeah, the dog choose the animal with the head gamekeeper, but he's letting the dog do the job and choose the animal, and they will only go after a male with uh, oh, right. the, the stag. And how how is it killed at the end? Um, that's the the part I don't like it so much. Maybe because it's not in my culture, uh, but at the end the the dog will surround the. Stag, which probably will go in a pond or a river or something, and uh, head gamekeeper or someone designated before will go with a long knife. I don't know how you call it, but uh, yeah, like but, a spear. Yeah, yeah, and will kill the the deer. Yeah, okay. I have seen pictures of that before. It's it's very far removed from uh, a culture and tradition that I know. 
and I've Same never been there. I've never been part of it, so it's kind of it's difficult for me to to comment on it, other than uh, just be intrigued as to the process. Same for me, but it was very interesting and um, to be there and to see it from inside because we mostly have a very bad image of it. Yeah. Uh, but when you see it from inside, yes, of course, maybe it seems barbaric for, for some people, of course. But at the end, the deer has a lot of chains, maybe much more than any other kind of hunt. Because most awesome. of the time you will escape the dog. Mm. And what do they do? I'm assuming they eat the, I, they eat the deer at the end of the day, do they? Uh, the the dog, yeah, for the, the meat, all the meat. Oh, is the for meat the goes dog. for the to 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 feed the hounds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know how I know how much those packs of hounds eat. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, but not that not that at that moment. I mean, they will cut yeah. the the deer. Later, probably take the best part for the hunter. I don't know. Mm. That's exactly. But uh, most of the the meat will go for the hound. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's something I uh, I will need to dig in more. I'd like to go and see it and and just sort of immerse myself in it so that I can understand it better exactly. and understand that how, how important like, uh, it is part of their culture and, and tradition. And I mean, we're just, this whole, this whole issue that we're putting out on Modern Huntsman is about culture and, and traditions in particular and uh, trying to wrap your head around uh, traditions from different parts of the world which might be very far removed from what you're comfortable with and trying uh, trying to decide, or not, not necessarily decide, but trying to... Um, come to a point of of understanding of what traditions have a place in the modern world and what traditions which many of which are were historic traditions we've decided as society are no longer like morally acceptable like um you know like uh fighting bears with dogs it still goes on illegally but it was very much part of the culture of certain cultures historically but we don't do it anymore um, and, and some of these, like some activities like this, are kind of on the edge of that. And I, I think we will get to these very polar debates about whether these these kind of activities, which arguably are very important parts of certain cultures, should continue in modern society. Um, but it's something I would certainly like to yeah, like sure. to see, so I could understand it. Sure, and the I mean, I was very interested in being part of it just to see it from inside because you cannot have, for me, have a a good opinion if you don't know perfectly the the subject. Absolutely, yeah. No, I'm 100 percent with you on that. So yeah. I'm I will not say my personal opinion on that, and <laughs> still yeah. have to figure out. But yeah, the, just seeing it, it's beautiful in a way. There's a lot of people very happy to, uh, to give their opinions without knowing anything on a subject. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> now, um, just as a way to wrap up, there's one final image I want to ask you about. And it, it is a truly stunning depiction of the Milky Way with a safari vehicle and somebody standing on top, I think, pointing at the sky. Uh, I'm assuming that was uh, that was in Namibia as well. Tell me about that night. Um, and tell me, because a, a some people will be interested in this, without digging into it too much, the technical aspect of taking an image like that. Yeah, first a bit of history, probably, for the, <laughs> the photo. Um, that was at the end of the our stay in Arindi, um, after being in the bush for every day, 
final evening there. We were very sad to, to leave the next morning. So we asked our local guy if he was willing to take us that night on the waterhole because we said, yeah, this guy looks crazy. There is almost, no, there is zero light pollution from, you can see like from 100 miles, you don't see any light. So we said, can you take us somewhere with with the water? Because we wanted to have, the first idea was to have the, the sky reflecting in the water. So uh, I said, oh, yeah, okay. But the Milky Way is showing up uh, only around, uh, it was one in, the, one in the night, I think, something like that. So we went back to the lodge, eat and, and go back with the Jeep uh, to the waterhole. And that was a quite stressful experience. <laughs> um, we arrived at the waterhole and we were first scouting for any predator, you know, <laughs> just no lion or cheetah or any dangerous animal around. Uh, and the guy said, okay, you know, you can set up your tripod and stuff. And then we shut all, all the light, just get the better exposure of the, the stars and the Milky Way. And we took like several uh, pictures. Then suddenly we heard like a big splash two meters from us <laughs> in the water. <laughs> and I, I've never run as fast in my life. I just took my tripod, went in the car and we were all three together in the car in literally like half second probably. And we, we light up all the car and we saw a young hypo, hippo coming out of the water hole. And then the guy said, okay, I think we have to move on because now the mother will go for the, for the young one. Yeah. So we are in trouble. So we had almost maybe 10 minutes to take the pictures and then back to the lodge. <laughs> and this is one of the images you got in that 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. So what do you, um, what do you, and this is the final, final question before we wrap this up. How do you line up a picture like that when you're trying to get the sky in focus? It's it's difficult in the in the dark. What is what does it use? Do you pick a bright star? Um, preferably, you want a night with no moon because if if you've got a moon, it's, it's very easy to focus on the moon. How do yeah. you get the, the focus and decide that sort of balance between your f-stop and your length of exposure so you don't get blurring of the stars as they're moving through the sky? Yeah, pr- this shot is probably shot around two point eight uh, aperture, probably. I think so. Um, and the best for me, the best way to focus on the star is to like, if your camera, normally most of camera now can do it, but you can like zoom in your screen of the camera, like maybe five times zoom or something and a manual focus on the, on the star from, from the screen and not pointing in and looking in the mirror sure and that's the for me it's the best way yeah using the live view or if you've got a mirrorless then you th- yeah. then you can just look through the the viewfinder exactly 
Yeah, yeah, it's uh, tricky, but it's a, it's a stunning shot, uh, Derek. I'm going to wrap this up because we've been talking for uh, we've been talking for half an hour on a handful of pictures. It's been fascinating. I hope that I get a chance to meet you again in person because although we've talked before and both aware of the work that both uh, that we each other do, uh, we'd only met the once and it was pretty briefly and uh, it was pissing down with rain outside and you were busy with two days um, shooting for a job <laughs> straight <laughs> after. So I imagine that we will we will end up meeting somewhere in the field. Uh, I spend a lot of time in the States, so you never know. Maybe I'll be there when you do your road trip at the end of the year. Hope so, yeah. That will, that will be cool. Cool. Well, thanks very much for joining us today on Behind the Lens. Thank you for having me.